Welcome to the Leaders Table podcast, where policy leaders share the inside stories of their impact on the world, and we capture the secrets behind their success to help you increase yours. Education, diversity, and equity, core American issues. What are the things that I should be pushing for to inspire a movement? Let's, let's dig into that. Welcome. I'm your producer, Molly Stevens, and here on the Leaders Table podcast, it's our job to dissect leaders in policy and education to dig into the practices, tools, tips, and actionable strategies of their success to empower you. This episode, we're joined by Superintendent of Newark City Public Schools, Chris Cerf. Chris shares lessons learned from a career in policy working for both Democrats and Republicans, and now is a leader of a school system that's doing really innovative stuff for kids. But beyond our conversation on career, listen for the surprising stuff, like what we can learn from whitewater canoeing about taking risks in policy, and why giving away power can be the best move to move systems forward. Listen and let us know what you think by emailing us at leaderstable at educationalequity.org. And now here's Chris Surf at the Leaders Table. All right, Chris Surf, welcome to the Leaders Table. Thanks so much. Pleasure to be with you. It's great to talk to someone that brings both uh, both important city leadership uh, experience as superintendent uh, currently of Newark City Public Schools. I look forward to talking with you also about your state level policy experience, your international ex- uh, ed- education experience, and um, and what seems like a a history a career that includes both legal and uh, and other leadership um, experiences that you bring to to uh, to leading a public school district. Terrific. Look forward to talking about it. So tell us a little bit uh, a little bit about what drives your days in Newark. Well, uh, hard to know where to start. So first of all, let me just describe uh, the district. Um, we uh, serve in total about uh, 50,000 uh, children in public schools in Newark. About 35,000 of them go to our traditional public school system, uh, and the balance go to uh, uh, charter public schools. Uh, We are a district that um, has um, been on a journey of many years now. Um, It sort of uh, has a reputation, not entirely deserved, of having been an unsuccessful district. Um, It led to a state takeover in 1995, uh, and for the past um, six or eight years has been uh, the uh, subject of a rather dramatic um, transformational um, effort uh, from all quarters of of the city. So, uh, and we're seeing real progress. Our graduation rate um, is increasing. Our 
performance on reading and math uh, tests are um, increasing. Uh, but we still have a, a long, long um, uh, way to go. So what, uh, what keeps me busy during the day? Well, first of all, um, I do try to keep um, my eye and our team tries to keep their collective eyes on, um, on the point of the exercise, which is to uh, make every decision uh, in light of um, our core objective, which is to make sure that every child who um, lives in Newark um, has access to a free public quality education that launches him or her into adulthood prepared for um, success, whether that's college or a successful um, career um, and so on. So, um, you know, the, the, in service of that objective, there are about a million moving pieces, um, and it's hard to know where to start. Um, you know, one of them is certainly, you know, the nuts and bolts of, of you know, financial um, of our financial life, so we spend about um, just under a billion dollars um, a year, and we do everything we can to make sure that we deploy those dollars in a way that maximizes uh, learning. So there's a lot to say on that um, subject. Um, we spend a, a great deal of time um, trying to give our um, uh, principals the support they need in uh, finding um, and retaining great teachers in implementing a curriculum with a high set of, of um, expectations and providing them with the data systems that enable them to track in real time uh, accountability uh, the uh, uh, student student learning so they can uh, adjust their uh, pedagogy in, accordingly. Uh, we spend, um, you know, a fairly, um, a, I spend a great deal of time engaging uh, members of the uh, community. Um, this is a, a, a system that, rightly or wrongly, um, has been on the receiving end of criticism over the years for spending insufficient uh, attention listening uh, to the multiple voices in the community. Whether that's right or wrong, I won't um, comment, but I do know that my day, my week, uh, my time is uh, invested extremely heavily in being in schools, meeting with um, parents, teachers, students, elected officials, listening, adapting, adjusting, uh, responding. So um, all of those are um, important parts of my day. And then, of course, there are the incoming missiles that are never anticipated that come in from one front uh, or another that often take a good deal of my day. And if you were to attribute one or two things to the to the upswing in, in Newark School's performance, Newark School um, uh, children's performance, what, what would you attribute those, uh, those to? Well, I, I, I guess I'd have to start with this, is um, there's an um, understandable lack of patience in the world of uh, of school reform, um, and it's understandable because most, for the last 30 years, for the most part, uh, the general approach in this country has been to try to do the things we've always been doing, but try to do them a little better, and that hasn't gotten very far. Um, so when you try to um, you know, design, direct, and implement a strategy that has a, a very substantial amount of change, a change in how, for example, you recruit, retain, and develop a great uh, 
teaching force and evaluate uh, a teaching force, a change that sets uh, very rigorous um, expectations and implements uh, comprehensive new curricula, a change that um, tries to be indifferent um, to, whether, to how a school came into being, you know, whether it came into being uh, through traditional means, whether it's a magnet school designed uh, to meet a particular uh, policy objective, or whether it's a charter school or even a community vocational technology school. If you're going to take the approach that all we're going to focus on is whether it is a good school and take uh, action when it's not, including closing uh, charter schools uh, and other schools, um, then in combination that body of work um, uh, is going to take uh, a few years to A, implement, and B, to start to show success. So it requires a um, little bit of patience. So to what do I attribute it? Well, I attribute the success to several things. One is um, we have uh, absolutely tried to organize a system that perhaps didn't always think in these terms around the idea that um, the only thing we care about is whether schools are successful, and we'll let other people throw the political rhetoric around. Um, two, we believe deeply that our teachers um, and our uh, school leaders are the most significant you know, variable um, uh, within the four walls of a school, at least, in driving student achievement. So we've taken, for example, uh, professional development very seriously. We've taken uh, educator evaluation very seriously. Um, we negotiated a contract where um, there's a sing single universal salary guide uh, as opposed to a different one for MA, PhD, and VA, and where um, the steps uh, in the salary scale uh, are determined entirely by um, whether uh, the teacher um, is effective in his or her craft as measured um, by uh, multiple variables, including how much students are learning. So the passage of time alone is not enough to generate a raise, but there must be a rating of effective or highly effective. We brought something like 240 tenure charges in the last five years, um, and about three-quarters of those individuals are no longer with, um, with the district. Um, we have paid millions of dollars, millions of dollars, to um, the teachers who um, are really doing an outstanding job. Uh, about 10 to 15 percent of the teachers are rated highly effective. This is on top of uh, their their salary. Um, we saw we have seen that 96 percent of our teachers um, who um, are most successful with children are choosing to return to the district. And uh, teachers who are seeing less success um, are are uh, not returning at anywhere near the same rate. So a focus on talent has been a really critical part uh, of 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 the work. Um, a focus, as I said, on uh, you know we sort of bought in early to um, whatever you want to call it. It is the Common Core curriculum, mm -hmm. uh, and we bought in very very early to um, 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 implementing that really across. The board, and that's a tough implementation, and really takes several years to really uh, get accultured to how that is taught. Mm -hmm. um, we, um, as I said, when I was state commissioner, I closed 10% of the charter schools in the district, um, uh, in the state rather, including several in uh, unsuccessful ones in Newark, 
And that went along with uh, a handful of school closures of traditionally failing schools here as well. Um, and, you know, the list goes on, but those are some of the key, um, key elements of the work. Now, it's interesting when you describe um, some of the change you're leading in Newark from uh, even when you were a state, commit, a state supervisor, um, from school closure to attaching uh, teacher compensation to, to attainment and on and on, these are big political issues. These are not things that I, that I, I these are things that I think you could describe in a sentence, but I'm sure they come with huge political rancor. How have you navigated those waters? How has Newark navigated those waters? And what do you have to teach other um, superintendents, other, other uh, school leaders that are trying to drive, drive big changes in a, in a really tough political environment? Well, I think there are a lot of folks who would say that I'm not in a position to teach anyone about that, because um, it, it, meaning that you are absolutely right that the kind of changes that have happened here, um, which desperately needed to happen, by the way, by any objective measure, um, uh, are generally not accompanied by um, harmony and consensus right. and <laughs> sort of uniform Except uh, acceptance, and they and they weren't here. And you know, other people have you know, you know various points of view about whether you know uh, we and I certainly take ownership for any mistake. Uh, uh, we could have done a more effective job in sort of getting a sort of uh, community-wide embrace of of of, of these changes. Um, but I will tell you, I will tell you a couple of things. Uh, you know, people can. Consider the source and take it uh, take it as they see fit. Um, one is you have to have an almost um, uh, righteous conviction in what you are doing, um, and a belief that um, that the purpose of the exercise is not harmony and consensus. Lovely to have something to strive for, and inclusion, giving people the dignity of having their voices heard is a value that cannot be um, understated, uh, overstated. It's a tremendously powerful uh, thing to do. But in the end of the day, change is complicated. Um, change has winners. Change has losers. And school systems, as a rule, are organized around the absence of change. There is a deep allegiance uh, among very powerful interests to the absence of change. And when you push through that, um, if you're not prepared for resistance, if you don't have a little bit of a uh, flak jacket on, you're um, going to settle into a least common denominator solution. And so I think the key is to have a belief system that is child-centered and is one that says, as long as I believe that every decision we are making is in the best interests of the only constituents we serve, uh, which are the, 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 the children often who are voiceless in the political debates. Then it kind of gets you through the night when things get um, a little bit loud and, and rancorous. Um, the other thing that I think is important is, you know, I, I taught high school history for four years, so I tend to sort of see things in, in uh, uh, historical terms. But the, um, there's uh, an awful lot of uh, skepticism that I think uh, one can fairly bring to this enterprise. I mean, if you ask anybody, um, 
you know, what is the purpose of public education? They will say, you know, to serve children, right? We're for, we're for the children, children first, or whatever slogan mm-hmm. you want to hear. But if you actually look at uh, what amounts to a $650 billion a year um, sector, second only to health care in the United States uh, economy, it will not surprise anybody you don't need to be sort of a, a Marxist historian to say that that attracts significant other interests as well. So let's look at some of those, right? There's the interest of employees as employees. Legitimate interest, by the way. Interest in job security, maximizing compensation, work conditions, uh, and so on. There are the interests of vendors. Um, there are the interests of elected officials in preserving uh, and expanding uh, power and resisting those who wish to uh, ask them to share power, for example, from a school board to um, LEAs, uh, other LEAs such as charter schools as they're organized here in, uh, in, in New Jersey. So if you sort of envision a Venn diagram, right, you have a big circle in the middle that says the interests of children, right? We, we are supposed to believe that the interests of children, the interests of employees as employees, the interests of elected officials, the interests of vendors, it's all one big set of completely overlapping circles. But, of course, that's not true. There are some uh, examples where something that is in the interests of children does not coincide with something that may be in the interests of uh, one of the other implicated um, um, interests. And um, I'll give you an example. The last in, first out rule, um, which is the law in New Jersey, which says that um, at a time of a budget cutback, when you have to lay off um, educators, that you are required as a matter of law to preserve the job of um, a less qualified um, individual and fire the most qualified uh, individual so long as the former is uh, one day more more senior. Now, you cannot defend that uh, as consistent with the best interest of children. You can certainly defend it, by the way, as in the interest of employees who are worried about arbitrariness of, of evaluations or worried about the arbitrariness of individual principles or the arbitrariness of the system as a whole. It's not that it is an unjustified position. It's just not a position that could ever be defended as being in the best interest of children. So um, long-winded way of saying that um, that the, the way to, if you're going to manage change, you have to wake up every day believing that um, even in the face of some opposition, you're going to try to stick with what um, um, is the reason for doing what you do, which is to get every kid launched successfully into adulthood, ready for the next phase of life. Now, I'm going to assume that that you weren't taught these values or this uh, this approach to leadership in superintendent schools. So, where did this come from? You know, it's a it's a good question, and I probably need uh, you know years of psychoanalysis to to, <laughs> to get at it. But I think it comes um, from well, first of all, I, you know, I am a uh, you know, oddly enough, I've worked for, you know, I've worked for uh, Democrats and Republicans alike. Uh, you know, I've worked uh, for uh, President Clinton in the White House Counsel's Office. Uh, I worked for Mayor Bloomberg in New York City. I worked for uh, Governor Christie here in New Jersey. But I happen to be a sort of liberal Democrat by orientation, sort of grew up in a progressive home, grew up in, um, you know, what sort of uh, those values 
uh, sort of imbued uh, uh, in me. But I think it's also uh, maybe goes back to my sort of sense of, of history, and that is that um, there uh, we forget it sometimes. But um, you know, the, the the if you read all of the sort of founding documents and you read all of the sort of um, historical context um, that led to um, this country, they were basically based on this idea of equality, and, and, and equality is a word that is bandied about a lot, right? And there are a lot of different sort of approaches through time to equality. You've got this sort of Marie Antoinette approach, you know, let them be cake, that, or, or you could even say Aristotle, right, where you, where you say that, um, uh, you know, equality, you know, there's a sort of natural classification of people, and that's in sort of the natural order of things, so I think we can quickly reject that. And then there's another approach to equality, that is sort of characterized uh, by um, extreme versions of Marxism that says we're going to forcibly redistribute um, wealth and force equality down people's um, throats, you know, whether they whether they want it or not, and that has led to, I think, unspeakable uh, brutality in its most extreme applications in the Soviet Union and in uh, uh, China in, in, in particular. So while that may sound good on paper, um, its implementation um, is frankly terrifying. So the American vision was one of equality of opportunity. So we're not going to force equality. We're going to ultimately build safety nets and, and avoid extreme versions of this with our tax code and Social Security and so on. But what we really are going to do is make sure everybody gets an equal chance at life, right? So we said that, by the way, that would have been very surprising to anybody who was African-American or female in 1776, but that was still a value that was deeply embedded in our sort of political psyche, and the American experience has been in pursuit of the faithful implementation of that value, you know, for going on 250 years um, uh, now. And um, the truth is that... Public education is intended to be the most important catalyst of the implementation of that objective. Regardless of birth circumstances, one should have an equal opportunity at life by uh, being given, you know, this sort of educational foundation that could be the basis of your maximizing your personal potential. And we all know that that is a great big fat lie when it comes to uh, the reality of how class and um, race work in this country, particularly in urban and certainly in, in some parts of rural America as well. If you are born poor, um, and if you're born, for example, in an urban environment, and by the way, that just is a factual matter, means that you're disproportionately likely to be an individual of color, the probability that you will graduate from high school with um, an educational foundation that enables you to go on to the next phase of life successfully is uh, despairingly low. And that is a system failure of the first order. And as deeply as we are in denial of that as a nation and as unsuccessful as we have been in resisting the interest groups that want to sort of deflect us from doing something about, about that, that is a you know moral crisis. It's a crisis of social justice, and um, I have um, wherever that belief system came from. Um, I think that um, anyone who can make a contribution to fixing that 
really ought to do that because that is as important or as anything and more important than most things in public life. Chris, when you when you think about these issues of, of equity, inclusion, um, the achievement gap, particularly for Newark, but, but for any other uh, leader trying to lead a system that, that drives toward these values of equality, these notions that of, of equality of access that you just described, what are the things that um, that you've learned and that drive you daily to keep that goal in mind? Um, well, I guess uh, a few a few things, right? Uh, one is that um, not everybody believes um, in that core value. Um, that um, I, 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 that that there is. Um, one of the reasons there is such a level of rancor in uh, American public education, and there are a lot of reasons, is that we do not have a common national view about what the purpose of the enterprise is. I mean, if you um, really actually um, get deep into um, the sort of belief systems out there, you know, here are some possibilities, right? The purpose of public education is to you know, facilitate the melting pot and to sort of foster democratic values. The purpose of public education is to educate the sons and daughters of the masters of the universe and prepare them to take the reins of the world while others, you know, move on to jobs of lesser consequence in, in, in the world. Or the purpose of public education, as was captured in, um, in the prior iteration of uh, Title I is to leave no child behind, which is that it is exactly our goal to make sure that every child gets an equal opportunity at life. And we're not just focusing on the gifted or the ones who are the most privileged uh, and so on. So I think all of those views are absolutely out there in American, uh, in American culture. And when we do things like say, well, we really got to make changes to make sure that every child has an equal opportunity at life, you just don't have buy-in. Uh, in uh, you, you don't have universal buy-in, which um, and if you don't have a common set of objectives around what the goal is, you are definitely going to have disagreement about the path that you're going to follow to get wherever you're trying to get. And how do you how do you drive that common understanding, particularly for uh, for a, a leadership team that um, may not come from the communities it's serving, or or may not fully deeply personally understand the 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 journey of a of a young black or or a brown or or brand new immigrant uh, South Asian kid who's in the Newark public schools, um, growing in their own cultural context, struggling through the issues that that poverty may be exhibiting on their family. How do you, how do you keep that front and center for well, your team? Uh, you, 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 several ways. First of all, let, let me reaffirm: it is extremely important to keep that front and center. And mm-hmm. Like every other human being that ever walked the earth, I can only walk in my own shoes, right? I can, I, you know, I can try very, very hard to see the world through other people's eyes and to be open and learn um, from others. But, you know, we're all sort of limited in our ability to, 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 to do that. So one of the things that I have done um, over the last uh, several years is I have put a real premium on building a management team um, that is of Newark uh, and of this and of this community, um, uh, and we've made real progress in that regard. All of our assistant superintendents, for example, the folks to whom the principals 
um, answer are former highly successful principals in um, in in the system. Um, so that's one thing. The second thing is that. Um, you know, I hardly ever am home for dinner uh, at night because night after night after night I am in uh, community meetings or school meetings or um, uh, community group uh, meetings or so on. So I really do try very hard um, to sort of um, listen. Um, we have something like eight hours of public meetings a month. Um, uh, I mean, public, uh, you know, board meetings sort of things or committee meetings uh, and, and so on. And the third is, you know, I and you know, we maybe ought to um, touch on this a little bit. Is I really have um, uh, evolved um, over the years. So I sort of started out when I was deputy chancellor of the New York City uh, public school system. You know, with a, a pretty radical and pretty simple view, meaning, you know, there's only. You know, we're presiding over a moral crisis. There's a right way to fix this. A lot of people are going to object. We're just going to do it, um, and you know, and we're going to we're going to fix this thing. Um, and I am increasingly persuaded to the view that we need to broaden our horizons and understand really what what um, a lot of sociologists and a lot of brain scientists are now telling us loudly and clearly, which is that. Uh, the experience of poverty and the stress, uh, the stressors that go with it, and some of the other sort of concomitants of uh, of, of uh, just living at that end of the socioeconomic spectrum, um, are uh, profoundly relevant to um, children's um, learning journey through education. And while um, we should never use that as an excuse to not do better and better and better within the four brick walls of a school to make tough decisions about quality um, and, and to have the best curriculum and the best training and the best teachers and the best schools possible, we also have to embrace the view that um, a great deal that happens outside of the school is you know, hugely relevant. Um, and. So we are um, very focused on, um, um, I am very focused, and I think as a city, uh, the city is very focused on sort of trying to build approaches to education that are, um, uh, that sort of take into account um, the, the all that happens outside of school. You know, it's captured sometimes in, in words like community schools, which we're launching, but I think it goes much deeper than that. I think, it, and I think it actually, frankly, begins um, at uh, birth. Um, mm -hmm. And so we're working on a couple of big ideas that will try to um, develop, um, I think, a more holistic approach to learning um, in, in that sphere as well. Th that's exciting. I hope we can come back and talk with you about those once they're uh, once they're rolled out. I I want to turn a little bit to a, a couple questions that are on my mind about your personal leadership style and and some of the things that you have to teach up and coming leaders. Um, and Chris, when I look at your resume, I think. There are very few people in the country who have both Bill Clinton and Chris Christie on their resume as bosses. Um, you have figured out how to lead across uh, across dramatic political change and in, in dramatically differently thinking political environments. And 
and I can't help but think that there's a, there are a couple of generations of young people who are uh, in the midst of that change, trying to figure figure out how to how to lead a vision um, in in the midst of very turbulent and, and changing environments. What what would you say to them? Are the secrets to to doing what you've done? Well, I don't know that there's just I don't know that there are secrets, but I can tell you a couple. Uh, I could share a couple of thoughts. Is one is you know when when you are in government service, unless you are truly, you know, at the political center, right? Where it, you know where uh, your job is to help your the, the you know the the chief executive, the governor, the mayor, the president, whatever, um, to acquire and expand power. Um, uh, you're, unless that is your job, right, uh, to basically be the sort of political Svengali of, of, of an elected official, then really you work for a cause. You work for a system, a set of sort of policy beliefs, right? And you treat the chief executive you work for with respect. You're always aware that you serve at his or her pleasure, and when you don't, you know, you should rightly be fired. But your first goal is to try to use your position to try to, um, you know, implement a set of policy objectives that you think you believe in that will make the world a better place. And to a degree, um, the political environment that you are in the middle of is something you need to sort of manage uh, in order to achieve your objectives. Um, now that's a very complicated dynamic because you know I never got voted for anything, right? I mean I you know I never the people of no of no state or city or country ever cast a vote for me. So you want to be respectful to the leader um, that that you work for, and you want to leave when you think that you know the the fit the fit doesn't work anymore. But I've always operated on the view that you know my um, any success I've had in implementing. Um, you know, a policy agenda. Uh, a critical part of that is 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 frankly finding a way to navigate um, the political shoals, right? Um, I, I uh, you know, I'm a whitewater canoeist, a wilderness canoeist. That's what I sort of do in my in my uh, spare time. And one of the things that uh, I realized years ago is when you are at the head of a set of rapids about to go down. Uh, you you know what makes it interesting are the rocks, right? It, it really wouldn't be that interesting if you didn't have to bob and weave your way uh, through the rocks. So you sort of view the political hurdles, political challenges, all the reasons uh, that you know good ideas typically die on the die on the vine, as you know why you exist is to figure out how to sort of work your way through them to get to a better place. Um, you know, I also have to say that I work really, uh, really hard to be um, uh, to, to get in the shoes of people who have um, different points of view from mine to understand the politics of uh, people who are taking opposite positions and see whether I can help them, you know, satisfy their needs while also accomplishing what I think ought to be uh, accomplished. Uh, and as I say, that's really hard. You know, the, 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 you know, empathy and the capacity to see the world through someone else's eyes. Um, um, so I guess that's, that, that's a couple of things. Mm -hmm. You know, there's someone listening to this. Uh, she's probably a young woman who's taught 
in a, in schools from three to four years. She's had some early policy experience. She's thinking about going to law school um, and wants to be Chris Surf when um, you know in, in ten to fifteen years. What what advice do you to give to her to ascend to the type of leadership opportunities that you've carved out for yourself? Well, I'm a little uncomfortable with how the question is phrased because nobody should nobody should want that. But if the uh, but if the question if the question <laughs> is um, what's the right path towards um, leadership positions, um, uh, I would uh, you know I, I look I've been uh, my, my path has been very nonlinear. Right, I started by teaching high school. Um, I got married, and my uh, wife was um, interested in getting her uh, doctorate in clinical psychology, so we basically picked, uh, we agreed in advance to go to whatever city that best met our educational needs, and we ended up in New York City, where the school that um, I got into was Columbia Law School. So I ended up um, going to law school as much out of inertia and default as out of any kind of, like, carefully thought out plan. Um, and I'm so glad that I did. I learned an enormous amount uh, about lots of things, including sort of how to think about um, the, uh, the, the issue. And I knew pretty quickly that I was not interested in the sort of traditional path. I worked at large Wall Street law firms. I ended up actually going and uh, clerking on uh, two courts uh, in, in Washington. Including the, um, and, the Supreme uh, Court but, with, uh, with Sandra Day O'Connor, I understand. I clerked for Saturday O'Connor, and I clerked for a great judge named Jay Skelly Wright on the on the DC on the on the DC Circuit, um, and I, I I knew that um, I did not want to have the sort of traditional uh, legal uh, career, but also had kids and a uh, you know and a, a mortgage to pay and all that. So um, so uh, I sort of had a little bit of an epiphany um, that um, this really was not really right for me. So I sort of. Uh, um, Knew I always wanted to be involved in in public policy and education, and was fortunate enough to uh, get connected with a then obscure governor uh, from Arkansas, uh, and um, um, worked on the campaign, worked on the transition, and ended up in the uh, White House Counsel's uh, office, where I had a chance to really work on uh, this sort of fascinating intersection of policy, politics, and law. Things like you know, regulating tobacco, or you know, or the Counterterrorism Act, and I um, realized that that's really what I was meant uh, to do. So I sort of made my way back into uh, education. I did it first in uh, as a general counsel in a private sector company that was focused 100% on public education, and then since then, pretty much all of my time has been in uh, as a government. Um, official of one kind or another. So if you actually divide the number of years, I'd say that 60% of my career has been as a, a government employee and about um, 40%, maybe a little less, um, in, in the private sector. Mm-hmm. Now, how, do you, how have you made those decisions? And I, I can only imagine that being at a, law, a Wall Street firm, uh, being on one track is not easy to leave, even if you have the itch to go do something else. How how have you made yourself go and be do the courageous things that have uh, led you down this path? Well, I had this sort of uh, <laughs> this is an odd thing to say, but uh, my wife and I were at a holiday party. This was a DC law firm. We were at a holiday party. You know, the 
gathering up, and she sort of, we looked around, it was a lovely event, lovely people, good people, and my sort of wife turned to me and said, Chris, what the hell are we doing here? This is like totally not, you know, this is like totally not our world. And she was totally right that, uh, you know, there I was in what, you know, some people would say was the winner's circle, like a partner in a successful D.C. Um, uh, law firm. But she was right. It just was not who I am. Um, so I sounded like I sort of anticipated the millennial, uh, the millennial uh, perspective a little bit. But I, you know, I never um, thought that the acquisition of wealth was uh, particularly um, a, a primary motivating force in what I did. Uh, in, in what I did, I sort of looked at happiness and how people, um, you know, who, who I knew in life who really felt fulfilled and, and happy. And, and I found my observation, which I think has since been confirmed by research, is, uh, you know, having enough money to be, you know, you know not desperate is very important. But having a lot of money seems not at all positively correlated with satisfaction uh, and wealth and, and satisfaction and happiness. And being fulfilled and having a sense of, you know, doing something useful and powerful with your life, um, which just really, you know, I thought maybe it's a hedonistic impulse, but I thought was, um, you know, the right path to personal satisfaction. So I sort of always broke the tie in favor of that. And the rest of it was honestly as much random and luck as, as uh, anything else. I certainly have been a risk taker in my career choices. I have over and over and over again taken, a, uh, taken jobs that were, you know, uh, frankly, you know, so new as to be uncomfortable or, you know, if, if you, you would go, wow, I really don't feel like I'm qualified to do this, but I guess I'll figure it out. Uh, on the theory that pretty much everybody's faking it to one degree or or another, so I think being a risk taker, having a, a conviction that um, you know I never wanted to get into the place where you know that second house in the in the Hamptons was going to limit my ability to take interesting jobs and uh, and so on. I guess those are two things that um, influenced me in my various career decisions. Yeah. I'm also, I can't help but ask the question, you've been married 35 years, which is a success story in and of itself. Um, and you whitewater raft in Canada, which is incredibly interesting. And you've also built, um, uh, built a platform for yourself that allows you to lead in a really important way. I just cannot imagine that you haven't learned a couple things about living life outside of work that, um, that couldn't benefit the rest of us. What are those couple of, uh, of, of gems that you would want any young person trying to follow that path to, to know? Well, uh, wow. Uh, I'm honored to be, to be asked because, you know, I believe me, I'm not at all sure I got anything figured out, but, um, so, uh, one is, I mean, I, I, this sounds like a Hallmark card. I apologize, but, uh, you know, one is to really be true to yourself. Right. And to, really listen to the voice, right? If the voice is saying, hey, I really, you know, I look at my kids, I really don't want to be, you know, I, I got this fabulous job as an analyst at, uh, you know, Gore, Goldman Sachs, or this is, this is not accurate facts, but as a, at a bank, or in, and this isn't who I am, this isn't what I want to do, uh, then listen to the voice and do something else, right? Uh, it's, it's, I think that's one. The second is, it is possible to take ourselves way more seriously than we deserve. 
Um, I mean, I, I sometimes take comfort in thinking that, uh, you know, uh, dinosaurs roamed the Earth 75 to 100 million years ago. You know, Homo sapiens have been around for, what, 60, 70,000 years. Maybe I'm off a little bit, but not, but not too long, sort of a blink of, uh, a, a, a blink of time. You know, you walk by any, you know, uh, graveyard, not to sound morbid, and you look at, uh, and all of these folks had these, like, in, these incredibly high-stressed, you know, moments. They didn't get that promotion. You know, their, they, their girlfriend broke up with them. Their, uh, um, you know, someone, someone else got a compliment and they didn't, or whatever the case may be. And you go, wow, that really didn't matter at all. And if you can just get... To the point that you know you try to sort of live um, to try to put all the stressors in life in some kind of context. It's uh, actually quite liberating. Now I'm relatively lousy at that, but I uh, but I do have that conversation with myself fairly often. Is this thing that just went wrong really worth the level of anxiety that I am experiencing uh, over it? And the answer is almost invariably no. Um, so I don't know if that's a life lesson, but that's my answer. Hmm. And you mentioned earlier that, uh, that you start your day thinking, you know, maybe, maybe today will be about reviewing our accountability plan and you come in and the first two missiles are, are lobbed at you. I wonder what you, I wonder if you could describe one of those missiles and, and what, what you do to kind of keep, keep that North Star to make sure that you, you're you actually being productive on a, on a day-to-day basis? Um, well, the, the, first, the, the first thing is you, you know, any leader should hire uh, uh, um, a cabinet, teammates, a senior executive team that is smarter, more knowledgeable, and better than you are. Right? And meaning, believe me, the key to successful leadership is um, being um, uh, a wise um, uh, uh, human capital manager and having the security to realize that, you know, giving people uh, a lot of power and authority to um, go out and do their thing is incredibly important. Yeah, you want to sort of operate as a team with a common vision and common set of goals, and you want to, you know, also, you know, be in a position to verify that, um, you know, that things are happening when they're supposed to happen. But, um, you know, frankly, I, 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 the more I can have big ideas in the shower and the less I am, you know, in the 18th you know, column of some spreadsheet down to the 18th decimal point, the better I am at my job. It's really my job to sort of play above the net a little bit in uh, terms of our political strategy, our educational strategy, uh, and, and, and so on. And that's really, really hard to do because um, there's so many things that go. I mean, we're running a city here. We're the largest employer in the city. We have a great mayor who's doing great things, and, and, and remarkable things are happening in the municipality of, of uh, Newark. But, um, but still, we're the largest employer, and, you know, every day things go wrong. There are... Um, you know, allegations against some employee for something or there's something horrifying has happened in a school or to a student or, um, um, you know, you get some body blow in the budget process or, um, you know, you have a, uh, you know, the 
uh, one of the unions decides to, you know, try to do a takedown of somebody or something. I mean, there are all these things that sort of happen. Um, and the more you can keep your eye on the big things and the more you can be surrounded by really high quali- uh, highly qualified, competent people, um, the better the system uh, will be. Um, so the and- kind of incoming missiles I have, well, I just enumerated some of them. They tend to be uh, involving uh, politics um, or uh, finances or um, uh, personnel in one way. Uh, in one way uh, or another. Mm-hmm. And is there a piece of technology or a practice or something that you rely on every single day to hold it all together? Uh, yeah. I, as a matter of uh, policy, never participate in social media. How do you like that? <laughs> uh, uh, meaning, uh, me, <laughs> I mean, that's not the answer you were looking for. You've given yourself hours of time back every day. <laughs> given myself hours of time back. I saved myself a lot of stressors, and I like to think I figured out that um, uh, the whole concept of the media has changed in a really negative way. It used to be when there were like three channels and every city had a newspaper and maybe even tossed in a CNN or whatever. No matter what they would write, they would always like call up and fact check, right? Uh, and, and at least um, and now the ethos is completely, completely removed from any allegiance to factual accuracy in the blogosphere. And, and as a result, I mean, I get a lot of lovely things said about me, and I get a lot of you know, negative things said about me. And I don't pay any attention to any of them if they come through um, kind of a blog that has literally sometimes make stuff up uh, or simply retweet something without verifying it or, or, or so on. So I just, I don't understand how people have Twitter feeds and social media feeds um, where, I mean, I have enough problem, you know, finding the bottom of my email inbox without, uh, without, uh, without all that. So that wasn't the answer you were looking for, but I thought you might find that interesting. Chris, we, we thank you so much for your, your generosity of time and, and, uh, and insights. I would like to take you up on the on, um, on, on following up on the childhood, early childhood initiative that you described earlier, maybe do another podcast in the, in the coming months or, or in a year when, uh, when is a good time to talk about that. But uh, thank you so much for this. We really enjoyed it. Oh, it's my absolute pleasure. Thanks so much. Good luck to all that you're building in Newark. Thanks. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Like this interview? Follow us on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. You can also visit www.educationalequity.org slash leaders table for more resources to grow your impact. Tweet us your questions for future interviews at Lee underscore national. Thanks so much. Your host at the Leaders Table is Jason Urenz. I am your producer, Molly Stevens. And thanks to John Stevens for our music and editing. 